You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Centre College of Design. Welcome to our second episode of Change Lab Presents. Throughout this season, on alternating weeks, we'll feature a series of bonus episodes we've handpicked from some of our favourite podcasts by, for, or about the Black community. This week, we're excited to share an episode from the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics from the Wonder Media Network. Host Ashanti Golar leads conversations with women changing the face of politics. Episodes include interviews with politicians, candidates, and influencers. Today, you'll hear from Brittany Packnett Cunningham, named by People Magazine as one of the five inspiring people charting a path forward as America fights racism, Brittany is the co-founder of Campaign Zero and a leading force in the fight for social justice. Please enjoy this Change Lab Presents episode of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. We want to introduce you to our bonus season, Freedom Summer. In June 1964, Freedom Summer, also known as the Mississippi Summer Project, was a volunteer campaign across America to attempt to register as many Black American voters as possible in Mississippi. News coverage of Freedom Summer shed a light on the white supremacy and police brutality that Black Americans faced. The FBI announced Tuesday night the finding of three bodies in graves at the site of a dam near Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers disappeared six weeks ago. Over the past few weeks, we have been experiencing another Freedom Summer. In Minnesota, are saying to people in New York, to people in California, to people in Memphis, to people all across this nation, enough is enough. Cell phone videos and social media are once again providing a glaring spotlight on the inequities and injustice that are woven into the fabric of American society. In this special season of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, we are diving into the past and how it's impacting our present and future. From protests to political campaigns and youth involvement, change is in the air, and the fight for liberation continues. We will be hearing from some of the Black women at the forefront of today's movement who are fighting for change and making history to ensure that we have justice for all. So we cannot and we will not back down. Her name was even floated as a potential VP pick for Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. It is no surprise that whenever Congress is debating issues of equity and justice, Congresswoman Lee's voice is one of the strongest and most prominent. 
Today, we talk about her work as a college student, a member of the Black Panther Party, and what Congress is doing to fight systems of oppression to reshape and reimagine our political world. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining us and happy belated birthday. Thank you very much. Really happy to be with you. I'm really excited to talk to you today. And for our listeners, the Congresswoman is such a legend and just all of her work that she has done in Congress over the years, especially for Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. But I have to ask you, this first question, because it's something that I just want to talk to you about for so long, is you were a part of the Black Panthers. What was it like being a Black Panther? I actually was not a member of the Black Panther Party. I was what they called the community worker. Community workers had a lot of responsibilities, as did Black Panther Party members. And remember, the Black Panther Party uh, began as a result of police brutality in the African-American community. I mean, they stood down the police because things, police murders, police brutality, as we know now, were occurring then. And they were the first organization that really took the police on. And so it was out of that that the Black Panther Party formed their survival programs because it was not only an organization that um, addressed police brutality, but it was an organization that addressed systemic racism and poverty. And so what I did, and which was really phenomenal work, and I was a single mother on public assistance with two little boys. I helped sell uh, newspapers, Black Panther newspapers on street corners. I actually uh, participated in the breakfast program for children who didn't have, whose parents didn't have enough money to buy food. And that's actually the breakfast programs from the federal government actually started as a result of the of the models that the Black Panther Party used. I also uh, really worked with Huey Newton and did the research on his uh, book, Revolutionary Suicide. It was really a phenomenal project. I got to know Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Elaine Brown, Erica Huggins, Joan Kelly, who just passed away, and many of the leadership of the Black Panther Party, because as a community worker and as a student, I was very involved in a lot of the work with uh, party members. I actually uh, brought Shirley Chisholm. You know, I got involved in politics through the first presidential, the first uh, time a black woman ran for president, and that was Shirley Chisholm, who was the first African-American woman elected to Congress. And so as the Black Student Union president, I invited her to come to Mills College, where I was attending, and I got involved in her campaign by uh, her insisting that I register to vote and I had a class that I was go flunk because I didn't want to work in any of those campaigns. Well, bottom line is I worked in her campaign and got the Black Panther Party really involved in voter registration efforts. I was the one that went and asked uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to consider becoming politically active around Shirley Chisholm's campaign, and they did. So I worked on all phases of the Black Panther Party and in all the, the different divisions. I actually bagged groceries. You know, the Panthers had a whole 10-point program, which, again, the free breakfast program for the kids. Uh, they started the community health center movement by instituting the George Jackson Free Medical Clinic. They did sickle cell tests. In fact, it was the Black Panther Party that raised awareness about sickle cell disease as, a, as it disproportionately impacts African-Americans. Fast forward to 2020, people in in the African-American community and black and brown communities are still struggling disproportionately as it relates to food security, food deserts, 
healthcare disparities, unequal education. I helped start, actually, I wrote the first proposal for the Black Panther Party Community Learning Center. They established a Black Panther Party school. And so I was very instrumental in working on that project. So I did a lot of work with the Black Panther Party, and I can just speak to how phenomenal they were and how necessary they were and how we should, as we move forward, you know, there's this... Um, symbol in Ghanaian uh, in the uh, in, in Ghana called Sankofa. It's a bird, a beautiful bird looking back, holding an egg in her mouth. And it's like, in order to move forward, in order to fly forward, we have to look back. We have to know our history. We know where we've been. And we have to uh, build upon that so that we can move forward. And now our wonderful young people in the movement for Black Lives, our dreamers, all of the movements that are taking place are a continuation of what I see as the civil rights movement of, of today, as well as what the Black Panther Party uh, actually started as it relates to standing down and insisting that, that policing in our community uh, change and stop disproportionately killing black and brown people. I just, I love hearing that history so much because you were in the Black Panthers and Virgie Rollins, who is the chair of the DNC Black Caucus, she was involved in the Black Panthers. So I love the fact that there's still so many women around in leadership who are able to tell us so much about our past. Mention one more thing about our past, which we have to take seriously now. Edgar Hoover targeted the Black Panther Party. Many people were killed. Many people were set up to go to jail. I have my file, and if you could see my file and the lies that they told on me and how they tried to uh, set me up in many ways to be killed, it, it's really a very uh, dangerous, that was a dangerous time for us who were involved in the movement. It's a dangerous time now, and so we have to be very vigilant about what, these, what this administration is doing as it relates to these uh, raids, armed militia coming into our communities and the danger now that's being readily seen by everybody. So COINTELPRO was vicious. It was terrible. It it really did help destroy the Black Panther Party, and we cannot let that happen again. Yes, and if anyone hasn't watched a documentary or researched the Black Panther Party, please do so. And what the Congresswoman is saying right now is really true because there are several Black historians on Twitter who have been showing the correlation between what the Congresswoman just said, with us seeing these raids today, and what they did do to the members of the Black Panther Party, particularly when they saw black and white people coming together to fight these systems of oppression. So just be very vigilant, stay woke, and understand what's going on right now. And then talking about where we are at right now from the Black Panther Party, you have worked on many campaigns before you ran for office yourself, including Shirley Chisholm's campaign, and you endorsed Senator Kamala Harris for president. What has it meant to you to see the evolution of Black women's political leadership? Gosh, it's been like amazing. It's been, it's hard to really describe because those of us who were like really in the movement and then were elected to public office could have only done that because of a Shirley Chisholm, because of my mother, because of those black women who came before us. And it's always been for me about making sure that more black women have, have a chance to break these glass and marble ceilings. And so to see this in many ways, it's like a quantum leap to see now the movement, um, 
catching up with what many of us really wanted for years and decades is just, uh, it's in a way, it's very humbling, but it's like, it makes you think, okay, you know, we all, this is a marathon we're in. We have to all take the baton and run this lap of this race. And uh, those of us who were activists in movements, I say I'm still an activist in, move, in movement, but I'm also an elected official. And so to see so many black women now just who are bold, visionary and saying enough is enough. We are here to stay and don't even, you know, don't even try to say something about taking a backseat to anybody. I mean, it's, it's just uh, remarkable. And I'm so happy that uh, hopefully their struggles won't be like mine. <laughs> you know, I was, there were only like, when I was uh, a chief of staff on Capitol Hill to Ron Dellums, uh, there were probably maybe it was Carolyn, who was Shirley Chisholm's chief of staff, myself. I don't even know if there were any other black women chief of staff on the Hill. I mean, it was like maybe two or three and then just staff in total on Capitol Hill, there may have been 10. Maybe, and I'm saying maybe 10, okay? So you can understand the trauma of those of us who had to fight all these battles on the Hill with, thank God, Ron Dellums and Shirley Chisholm and Black members, the CBC members got it, and they were very conscientious and conscious of, of hiring us and protected us and supported us from all the attacks and assaults and the the sexism and racism that permeated the health as it relates to Stafford. So it's like exciting and it's really a beautiful thing for me to see so many black women not have to go through quite as much, still a lot to go through, but still we rise. Yes. And it's one of the many reasons why I have so much respect for you. It's because you are about opening doors and trying to make it a little bit easier for those black women around you, those who are coming after you. And I appreciate so much that you said that you're an elected official, but you're still an activist. Because something I tell women all the time is that I actually find the women who start off as activists make really great elected officials because they have that fire in their heart and in their soul about doing that community work. And it translates so well into policymaking for communities. So I love that you said that. Thank you, Ashanti. Well, so many black women come to elected positions or to corporate America or to nonprofits coming from movements or from spaces where injustice uh, is uh, permeates <laughs> their existence. And so I think Black women in general, uh, you know, come to these positions with that type of consciousness. And it's so integrated into all of our work. Mm-hmm. And I know I see it all the time when you're introducing legislation, when y'all are on the floor talking. And I love how you all back each other up. That always is just, I'm like, that's how it should be. <laughs> Having women just really there supporting other women. So thank you for doing that as well and showing that example. We had to stand with uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, based on the misogynistic, yeah. disgusting, vile comments of, of that, that guy. Mm -hmm. Yo, we ain't seeing his name. <laughs> to, to, heck no. 
we came down to that floor and we stood around her and we spoke and we we dared them to, you know, think that uh, what the the low life. <laughs> Let me shut up. But anyway, you're right. We we didn't even hesitate to race down there to say something and be with her. You all did not. And if any of our listeners have not watched yet, please watch Congresswoman Ocasio Ortez's speech. It is amazing, definitely worth the 10 minutes of your time, but then also what Congresswoman Lee and Congresswoman Presley said as well. Just, it's so important to see women standing in their power like that, especially when a white man try to abuse them and take away that power and make them feel small. There was some bidding on a bunch of different mattresses, and sure, they all look alike. The same goes for pillows. But peel away the layers, look at what's inside, and you'll see they aren't all created equal. And that's what makes every purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. In the lead up to the fight of our lives in this election, I've had some less than restful nights. But it's important I'm on my A-game while working to train so many incredible Democratic women who want to run for office. And that's why I turned to Purple. With proprietary technology that has been innovating comfort for over 15 years, I wanted to see what all the hype was about. Turns out, the Purple Grid does set the Purple mattress apart from every other mattress. It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With over 1,800 open-air channels designed to neutralize body heat, Purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. I received a purple pillow and have to say, because it's engineered with the same grid as the mattress, the total head and neck support and added airflow has resulted in a more deep sleep where I'm always on the cool side of the pillow even if I move throughout the night. For BGG listeners exclusively, Purple is letting you try every Purple product risk-free with free shipping and returns. They even have financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the Purple Grid and you'll sleep like never before. Go to purple.com BGG10 and use the promo code BGG10 to receive 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com BGG10, promo code BGG10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more terms apply. So getting back to some of the great work that you've done in Congress, Congresswoman, you call for the creation of the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. And the commission would have a broad advisory goal asking the U.S. to address a legacy of oppression beginning 400 years ago with slavery. Tell us more about this. Sure. And let me start by saying uh, when Josh Congressman Conyers, God bless his soul, introduced H.R. 40, I think I was, that's the commission to uh, look at uh, reparations. I think there were two of us on that bill for years and I was one of the two. (laughs) And so I support Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee's efforts to uh, get H.R. 40 passed. And my uh, truth commission, H.R. 100, complements that. And what we're doing is like, 40-some countries have established the historical context of the Middle Passage and 400 years ago uh, put forth before the uh, public so that they can uh, 
get through the process of truth telling, which we've never had in this country with the commission. And after truth telling, there's a process of healing and then transformation where you look at policies that begin to disrupt systemic racism. You know, many people and in this country don't understand, and I come from a very progressive area, and when uh, they, some of my constituents, white constituents, saw the disproportionate numbers of black and brown people dying from COVID-19, they would call me and say, what's going on? I'm saying, don't, and I had to say, don't you understand the disparities in healthcare as it relates to, example, the African-American community and Latinx community, and don't you understand this is connected to 401 years ago and that the chains of slavery have not all been broken. And so it's, you know, so connecting what has taken place in a place in a historical context put before the public to the horrific death and murder of Mr. George, George Floyd or to the wealth gap or how that's connected to the wage discrimination how that's connected to all of the systemic racist policies in this country. We've got to disrupt and dismantle them and transform this country based on racial justice. And so countries around the over 40 countries who have done this, they've called them truth, racial healing, some transformation, some reconciliation. And I'm saying there's really not a lot to reconcile in America uh, as it relates to uh, the the middle passage and the enslavement of, of human beings in this country. So we say, we want to transform this country into being a country that truly reflects uh, liberty and justice and equality for all. And we've got quite a few coast process. <clears throat> Again, working with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, we're putting these two together and we're going to build more momentum for it. And I would encourage all of you to get your uh, members of Congress to support HR, mine, H. Conrad's 100, as well as Congresswoman Jackson, Jackson Lee's HR 40. Awesome. Also want to go into our next question, keeping with COVID and the disparities, you've called for defunding the Pentagon. And one of the things you said was, Congress needs to prioritize our safety and our future, not more war. The prioritization of defense spending and the underinvestment in public health has led to 10 times more deaths from COVID-19 than the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. By over-prioritizing the Pentagon and military solutions, our country is drastically underprepared for any crisis that needs a non-military solution. So tell us more about this. Okay, I think, and I'm glad you raised this because my predecessor, a wonderful statesman and warrior, Ron Dellum, came to Congress in the 70s based on the being opposed to the Vietnam War. And he became a member of the Armed Services Committee. And he became the first African-American who has chaired the Armed Services Committee. I worked for him for 11 years. And his agenda was about domestic and Pentagon spending and how because of the huge expenditures over at the Defense Department that have nothing to do with national security, but more about waste, fraud, and abuse and feeding industrial, the military-industrial complex and developing missile systems that are for a a Cold War era that doesn't even exist. So there was so much money that we were wasting that could be used for housing and healthcare and education in our own country, that this was part of my work with him and part of his main um, uh, objectives. And so my district historically has been part of this movement. And we, uh, and I have continued and continued and continued for 22 years to try to make sure 
that we build support for the for cutting the massive expenditures in the Defense Department over at the Pentagon that I because I can cite you. For instance, seventy two million could be cut right now. Uh, Mark Pocan and I, excuse me, seventy two billion. We had an amendment just this week to cut it by ten percent. We got about 92, 93 votes, but it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface with a 10% cut. And so I have a resolution calling for a $350 billion cut, which lays out where these cuts could take place. And when you look at the obscene expenditures, there's a slush fund that's about $70 billion to fight these wars off budget. We don't even know where that money goes. The Defense Department, the Pentagon, that's been the only agency that's never been audited. So I've been working on legislation to require them to audit, to, to conduct an audit. So we finally uh, have that in, in place, but it's been 30 years, <laughs> you know. And so there and, and the black community and women and people of color throughout the country need to embrace this whole deal with regard to wasteful spending at the Defense Department, because that's where the resources are. You're talking about this year's $738, $740 billion. I know $300 billion could be cut for, from that and used for health care, for schools, for education, for uh, housing, to prevent, uh, you know, wars <laughs> from taking place. And it doesn't even touch what our troops need. Some of our brave young men and women are living off of food stamps and Section 8 housing. And so we're saying that we need to cut this budget and support our troops. It would do nothing to diminish our national security and put those resources into domestic spending for our young people so that they can have a debt-free college education, you know, so we can have a good quality public education. And we can do this if we can just get the political will. Most Democrats and Republicans won't vote for these cuts because the military contractors put plants and jobs in their districts. And so nobody wants their constituents to use, lose a job. And so we have to build support showing how, and we've done this, how this is not going to impact job loss uh, in members' districts and the types of jobs that are going to be created with uh, domestic spending for purposes that would... In, in terms of our economic security would far outweigh the jobs that uh, are created by the defense industrial complex. 30 years. Oh, yeah. Never been audited. Never. And so we've been trying and we're going to they're going to get audited, though. Those who are listening in will please get to their members of Congress and please show them. And we have all of the data, the polling, the information. I mean, it, it, it's really immoral to have a defense budget at $738 billion, and here we have to beg and, and work magic to try to increase food stamps and SNAP benefits. And I'm on the Appropriations Committee, and I see every day how this administration comes forward to, to zero out the Office of Minority Health, for example, or to cut funding for HIV and AIDS, or to cut funding for uh, health disparities or cut funding for public education or to cut funding for civil rights programs in the agencies. I mean, fair housing, they're trying to cut that that uh, agency. And so they're just demolishing, like Trump said, uh, they their agenda was to deconstruct the administrative state. And that's what they're doing. 
And so we have the resources to not deconstruct, but to build up uh, this country so that it can truly be a government that uh, supports its people, for the people and for our economic security. And we can do that by reducing the Pentagon budget. Congresswoman, you've told us how we can support the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission about defunding the Pentagon. What should our listeners also be doing in this moment to get Congress to move legislation around addressing all the inequalities that you just pointed out? I would say get in touch with your members of Congress. If this weren't coronavirus, uh, excuse me, pandemic moment, I'd say go to their offices and sit in and insist that you meet with their staff and tell them to sign on to these bills. Short of that, uh, get to your members of Congress uh, by emailing them and tell them to sign on to H.R. 100, sign on to H.R. 40. Get in touch with my office about all the other legislation. Co-sponsors, let me tell you, you got to get to 218 in in the House of Representatives to get your bill to the floor and to get a hearing. Short of that, we'll be working another 30 years to to get this done. And so political organizing and mobilizing in between elections is so important. So get to your members of Congress, tell them in no uncertain terms that you're holding them accountable for uh, supporting these efforts. And secondly, don't forget the elections. I mean, November is coming very soon. And we have got to make sure that everybody registers people to vote, gets engaged, vote. Ashanti, I know you know the importance of this and not feel that our vote is not going to count. I felt like that before I met Shirley Chisholm and I was not registered. I was very deliberate about not registering because I didn't believe either party, the Democrats or the Republicans, made a difference in my life and the lives of Black people. And she took me to task about that. So I understand where a lot of young people are about voting, (laughs) believe me. But believe you me, if you don't vote, you end up with a Donald Trump who's going to decimate, you know, your your life in many respects for generations to come. And you're going to have a Donald Trump who who because of his uh, inaction, uh, so many black and brown people have died of COVID-19. That's what we get when we don't vote. And so I would encourage you to do that and to make sure you participate in the census because the census coming up. Uh, determines the resources that are coming into your community in in addition to your political representation. And so it's so important to do the census. So there's a heck of a lot that we can do. And given the um, tragic, horrific moment we're in as it relates to to coronavirus, we need to use all of our technological skills. And I know all of you are brilliant and uh, can negotiate and navigate this world of technology. And, and so let's organize, let's unify, and let's, let's topple this administration. And let's make sure that the House and the Senate uh, returns to Democratic hands and make sure that you hold your elected officials accountable for what you think will enhance the life and, of everyone and deconstruct Uh, racism and build a country that's built with racial equity as part of its uh, DNA. Because right now, systemic racism is part of its DNA. Amen. And we got to get it done. Congresswoman, I've enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to move into our final question. And it is, what does liberation mean to you? Liberation means to me that Black Lives Matter. (laughs) 
I love it. Congresswoman, thank you so much. You are just such an inspiration. And the Congresswoman and I were chatting before the interview. So for our listeners, definitely head over to YouTube for the African American Policy Forum YouTube channel. They did a great conversation with Congresswoman Lee, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and Kim Fox from Cook County. Just amazing, amazing conversation with those three Black women. So go ahead and check out that conversation. Congresswoman, thank you so much again for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Well, Shanti, let me thank you so much. Let me just say how proud I am of you leading Emerge and what you're doing because you are really uh, helping uh, everyone, especially black and brown women and indigenous women, really be leading in this whole effort for change in this country. And so thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you for listening. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The BGG Podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls.